This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It can feel like housing pops up overnight in Denver. You turn around and there are new homes. Is the breakneck pace of construction compromising safety? It's something Donna Bryson has been investigating. She is housing and hunger reporter for Denverite, now part of Colorado Public Radio. Hi, Donna. Hi. Thanks for having me. Your story centers around a woman named Rhonda Kelly, a former firefighter and paramedic who now supports the mental health of first responders. And you say that her new home was, quote, too good to be true. How so? Well, when I first met Rhonda, she gave me a tour of her house, which is in Villa Park, uh, you know, one of these row houses or slot homes, we call them. And she showed me around. She'd been in there February 2018. And soon after she got in, she started discovering leaks. Uh, water was piling up under the decks. There were leaky windows. There was lack of weather stripping, just all these little things that annoy you when you buy a new house. But at the same time, as she showed me around, I could see construction work that had begun in her garage. There were structural issues that had that the city had noticed after she moved in, after she and her neighbors moved in. And somehow I kind of went off on a tangent. I was interested in what, what what's the recourse for a homeowner when they have defects when they have problems. And I kind of ignored, I suppose, the structural issue at first and started looking into this this question of what can you do as a homeowner? What recourse do you have, which we'll get into, and what protections homeowners have. But uh, you write that at one point the stove had been properly in, improperly installed, leading to a gas leak inside. Uh, and what was the nature of the structural issues? Well, the city had determined, I guess, doing spot checking of some of the plans that it looked over earlier that uh, it wasn't structurally sound, that it might not have held up, as a, as the city official told me, in, in a strong wind. might have been a problem in a strong wind, is how he put it. Uh, the city says it was still safe, but they wanted the, the building company to redo it. How did this story come to your attention in the first place? Just curious. Well, Rhonda had contacted the newsroom, and I think she'd contacted other newsrooms in town just to draw attention to these issues. Uh, So this developed over several months, and you were able to dig into this through a public records request. And what did the emails that you obtained contribute to the understanding of the story? As I said, I eventually began to pay more attention to the structural issue and to this question of, of plan reviews. The city... Uh, for years now, has the city's planning review department has for years now been saying that they're under a lot of pressure, not able to keep up with all these requests for building permits. And they had, had brought in an outside company to help with this, uh, SafeBuilt, which is based in Colorado, but works across the country. And I began to pay more attention to the SafeBuilt issue. Uh, I met a former staff department, city staffer, who had worked in the plan review department, who told me that uh, SafeBuilt was not able to keep up. SafeBuilt comes in to help the city keep up, and SafeBuilt can't keep up. And he had an email as a staffer that he'd received asking him to kind of take on some of the work that SafeBuilt wasn't keeping up with. So I, so I knew that that email existed, and I wanted to know what else, what other conversations had been having via email about the city keeping up and SafeBuilt uh, keeping up to its obligations to help the city keep up. Right. And keeping up doesn't just mean uh, processing all of the requests quickly, but it's also about doing them well. Yes, doing them uh, with the right expertise, bringing the right expertise to the question. And, and of course, Michael Bradbury, who's the, I guess, the whistleblower, you, I would say, the uh, former employee, worked for the city just a few months uh, and he, he acknowledges that he's a bit disgruntled, but he also says he's speaking out because he's worried about safety. And he feels that you need to work slowly, methodically, to do it right, and that he was working slowly, more slowly than some of his colleagues. And he feels that's why he was fired. 
city doesn't uh, confirm or deny that. They don't discuss personnel records in that sense. But that was the question. Are we working so fast that we're letting things get get through that could affect safety? That could affect safety. So in a 2017 report, the Denver auditor noted that Denver is growing quickly and issued a report recommending a review of staffing and resources to make sure that uh, they were sufficient in the permitting process. Safety was not a focus of that particular report. Uh, But this former plan reviewer told you that he believes Denver is building too fast to the point where stuff's being missed. It could hurt people. Is that an isolated view? It's not certainly not the view of the city. When I sat down with our city's chief building officer, who's uh, Scott Prisco, he says that what happened in Rhonda's case shows that the, that the system is working right. The uh, Her plans for her house, which was part of a row of eight, had been reviewed and passed. They'd, been, they'd gone ahead and built it, and people had moved in. And Scott Prisco did acknowledge that it's unusual to come in after the fact, after people have moved in, to say that there's been an issue. But they were spot-checking. They discovered some questions about uh, calculations, and they went to the builder to say, this needs to be redone. Uh, and that's, you know, the city's position is that we're doing what we need to do. We're reviewing plans, we're spot checking, we're going back, and we're making sure that people are safe. I'm not finding a lot of people who take the, the position that uh, Mike, that Mr. Bradbury, the uh, the disgruntled former employee, takes that things are unsafe, not seeing build, seeing buildings falling down. So I guess it's up in the air. What are you hearing as a result of your reporting, though? Are others coming forward with similar experiences or concerns? I've seen lots of kind of anonymous uh, commentary, uh-huh. and I think we so all typical of, of the internet these days. <laughs> so typical of the internet, and also in this case, I get the I certainly got the impression in my reporting that developers, builders are a little wary of taking on the city in, in a question like this. They still need their permits. They don't want to have a bad relationship with the city, which made it, it was very interesting for me. The 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 uh, company that built Rhonda's home and one other that they've also had to to redo have have filed suit against their engineer. It was the engineer who who did the plans that the city found problems with, and the engineer in its response to the suit actually did take on the city directly. And I was very so I was very interested to see this in court records where the engineer says uh, raises issues with how the city and how Safe built reviewed the plans. So that brings them that brings that issue into the legal documents and into kind of public commentary. Yeah, it raises a lot of questions. Now, of course, Denver is not the only city dealing with the push to build more housing. How does what you've found compare to I don't know what other cities are dealing with when it comes to growth? Well, I certainly have the sense that complaining about slow building departments or the slow issuance of permits is kind of a national sport. You see it across the country, particularly in other other cities that are experiencing growth. And in these cities, I kind of see the same response that we've had here in Denver, bringing in outside help. You know, Safe Built works across the country, uh, maybe relying more on their own staff. There was, I saw one article about a planner, plan reviewer, you know, a staffer for the city of Oakland who earned so much overtime, it was making headlines. He was earning, he'd earned more than the mayor, more than wow. the, the chief of police. So, and, uh, and trying to get better, I guess, computer help as well. The city of Denver has also got a new computer program that's meant to ease and make this quicker. Uh, city of Seattle brought in a new computer program and the uh, it went so badly that it, things were even slower. So I guess we avoided that here in Denver. Okay. So you, you started by explaining that you were really interested in what recourse buyers have with new homes. I think what I was so surprised to find, Donna, in your reporting is that if you buy a new home, 
I think you make all kinds of assumptions that it's going to be in good shape, right? Because it's brand new. It would have been inspected. It would have been uh, signed off on. Uh, a new home is a safe bet. That's not necessarily true. Yeah, I certainly hear that, as you say, on the commentary on the internet, both before and after my story. Uh, one thing that kind of surprised me is that you don't have to have your own inspector. I thought it was something that maybe, you know, a insurance company or your lender would demand, but you can you can opt out. Uh, I would not suggest that you opt out from what I've learned working on this story. But I also would have to say that uh, an inspector might not have noticed what uh, the structural issues that the city did finally come back and see. Oh, really? Uh, it's it's not uh, an inspector might come in and check to see whether the, the, the countertops line up or whether things meet code. That that's a private inspector. The city, of course, has inspectors who are looking throughout the building process. They're looking to see that things are meeting code. They're not going to maybe be looking at all the things that your own inspector would look at. So but at least if you get your own inspector, you can go in with your eyes wide open. But I think that there's such a rush sometimes to close these deals and with multiple bids coming in that people feel that they need to fast track these things. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's rushing everywhere. The the developers are rushing to get buildings up because there's a demand. Um, Homeowners or prospective homeowners are rushing to to get a deal to buy a house because sometimes there's multiple people bidding and you feel like you want to hurry and get it done. Uh, the and the sort of in the planning department, people are being asked to get done, get as much done as quickly as possible because there's rush everywhere. So yeah, I think along the way, when we rush, sometimes things get missed. What's the takeaway? Is it just caveat emptor, buyer <laughs> beware? That's something I heard several times while working on this story. And uh, yes, I suppose we do all have to be aware and maybe take a breath <laughs> at all these level, all these levels. And it's hard to say, hard to feel we can do this when we have a housing shortage, but uh, it's important if, if safety is, is going to be a concern. Thanks for helping us understand the pressures. Donna Bryson covers housing and hunger for Denverite, which is now part of Colorado Public Radio. There are mysteries to unravel on Colorado's western slope about a cannibal, pirates, even a fake lost civilization. They are the kinds of mysteries David Bailey loves to delve into. He's curator of Grand Junction's Museum of the West. And to crack these cases, he has recruited archaeologists, anthropologists, and other scientists. Now Bailey's written a book about uh, what his team has found. And hi, David. Hey, how are you doing? Doing well. So in this book, you describe your Western investigations team, uh, which tries to get a better sense of history through science. Tell us about the light you were able to shed on the case of Alfred Packer, the infamous cannibal. Well, we have a famous gun collection at the museum, the Threlkel Collection, and we had one gun in there that said, uh, found at the Alfred Packer murder site. And I'm like, yeah, right, another story. But <laughs> on the bo- yeah, but on the bottom of it was a, a session number, which is the number when your uh, uh, object comes into the museum, Tells you, you know, when it came in and what, and you can track it. But it was Western State's accession number. So I actually contacted the person up there at Western State and found out it had indeed been excavated at the Packer site wow. and what, by Ernest Ronzio, a famous uh, archaeologist. And what did this uh, firearm reveal about the, the story we know of Alfred Packer and maybe the actual story of Alfred Packer? Well, Packer said that um, he had shot the real killer after they became lost in the mountains in 1874. Uh, they were a bunch of 
uh, raggy, ragtaggle uh, prospectors, and they, um, no one believed him. They said, you know, you killed everybody and ate them. So he became the famous Colorado cannibal. But what we found out um, is, you know, I found a lot of evidence, like, including a crime, crime scene drawing that he, um, you know, looked like he might have been telling the truth. But that's as far as you can get with history. You know, you can find a lot of documents. But the yeah. thing, the big difference was, um, in 1985, they had exhumed the bodies, found out they'd all been killed with a hatchet, of course. Um, and Packer said that, you know, that there was the real killer was Shannon Bell and killed everybody with a hatchet. But uh, lucky for me, the forensic samples were still under each of the uh, taken from from each of the skeletons were bagged and kept at the Hinsdale County Historical Society. The good thing, too, is that one of the skeletons, skeleton A, had what looked like a bullet hole in the hip. And Packer said he shot the real killer. But then uh, that's as far as I got. And then I thought, well, I'll come down to um, Colorado Mesa University and to the Wubin Science Center and see if they can tell me anything about it. And they have state-of-the-art equipment, and they had an electron microscope and uh, analyzed the material under skeleton A. And uh, they found uh, lead bullet fragments that matched the uh, bullets in the gun because we had taken a sample from the gun. Uh, three bullets were still in the chamber. And there we had it. Um, Packer was telling the truth. He did shoot the real killer, Shannon Bell, who uh, had killed everybody while Packer was scouting a, a way out of there when they were trapped in the mountains. And so you speak to the, the limits uh, of a historian and then the power uh, you can bring into this when you bring on other scientists and other technology. So bottom line this for me. Do we misunderstand Alfred Packer? I think so. I mean, um, he was in a difficult situation. He did admit, admit eating the people, but he he denied, you know, to his death that he actually killed them. And uh, he said someday in the future, someone will find out what really happened. But uh, it took forensic science to come along and actually make that happen. Your team also looked into the possibility that the famous Jesuit explorers Escalante and Dominguez traveled through an area south of Grand Junction in the 1770s. This was based on the discovery of a piece of intricately patterned metal believed to be a part of a ceremonial cross that was discovered there. Uh, What did forensic tests reveal? Well, you know, we tested it and uh, found out it was not a Spanish relic but was a Masonic piece from the 1850s. Um, our test showed it was made out of pure copper, and it had the cross and crown and the vision of Constantine design on the relic. But while we were there actually looking for, uh, you know, it had been broken, so we thought we could find the other piece of this relic. Hmm. We found a, a small uh, fortification, called, uh, which we call a redoubt or like a rifle pit. And around that, we found, a um, using metal detectors, we found early uh, Spanish armor and um pieces of what they call a wheel lock pistol. It's kind of like a clock that winds and fires the pyrite um, very early, like 1590s. So in that way, you were actually able to confirm part of the lore. Right, yeah. Ironically, I mean, we've confirmed that the uh, the relic wasn't Spanish, but we found other um, Spanish relics. And it's a place called Canna Creek. It's a beautiful green valley in the desert with uh, clear cold water comes off Grand Mesa. So perfect place to camp, be you Spanish, uh, Native American, or early settlers or explorers. And indeed, they were there, in other words. They were. And uh, what is interesting is, you know, we found this, you know, redoubt site. It's like a rectangle stone fort. And we found all these Spanish um, 
pieces, armor and, you know, wheel lock pistol, and then seven campfires in a row below that, but no no skeletons or any uh, signs of trauma or violence. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the history detectives that have been assembled on Colorado's western slope, uh, led by the curator of Grand Junction's Museum of the West. That's David Bailey. Uh, and David, I want to move forward in history and talk about the Bailey brothers, no relation to you. They were international swindlers, some called them pirates, who lived in Palisade. Uh, what did your investigation into them uncover about their strange saga? Well, yeah, we were initially investigating um, George Crawford's ranch, um, who owned, who actually started uh, Grand Junction, and we we're looking for the um, you know records on the ranch. And I found this story of the the Bailey brothers, there, uh, Francis and Albert Bailey, two dapper gents that uh, charmed Palisade, Colorado, even before the wine industry. <laughs> And uh, they were, they were quite the gentlemen. They were, went to all the ladies' book clubs, and you know everybody loved them. But there was a comment in the newspaper that said they were perfect gentlemen, very you know hilarious and funny and parties, but they were terrible ranchers. So they got into trouble uh, financially. They had these ranches, like one of them was in, up above Palisade, but they did have one successful business, the Export Shipping Company in New York. And they made up a phony bill of lading to deliver all this equipment, firearms, tents, uh, to uh, uh, Australia. But that was fictitious. They got a fake uh, British captain to sail a ship, the Goldsboro, and they loaded all their uh, equipment and, you know, things that were delivered supposedly for Australia and sailed to Honduras. They were going to start their own colony and... uh, it caused an uproar in the United States and with the British government, and uh, and they thought, well, you know, there's no extradition. We'll just, you know, we'll be our pirates. And they had their guns and you know their uh, all this equipment. They uh, went to Honduras and bought a uh, plantation, La Fortuna, but then they raised the ire of one uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and so he sent a fake presidential warrant for their arrest since there was no extradition treaty, and the Hondurans. Uh, actually arrested them and brought them back, um, one of them, uh, Albert Bailey. Francis escaped because he paid off a captain of uh, one of the gunboats and ended up in Canada um, at, under the name Colonel uh, Kirkconnell, uh, uh, a well-landed gentry in Canada, but was eventually arrested because he sent letters to his sweetheart in New York City. Both the boys ended up in uh, Sing Sing prison and uh, did a four-year stint. How were you able to add to that story with your investigations team? Well, you know, uh, once I, that intrigued me, you know, Palisade, Pirates, uh, Landlock. And I, so I started to do a lot of investigation. I, you know, did a lot of historical investigations in New York and the, um, got a lot of the penitentiary records and then actually kind of fleshed out the guys from, you know, their letters and reports and, and newspaper articles and New York Times and, you know, the Denver papers. Because it made it was an, uh, kind of an international story. I mean, um, very unusual to have pirates in that, you know, 1907. So it, it, uh, it caught everybody's, uh, you know, imagination, I think, except the State, State Department. They were very upset about it. I can imagine why. A matter of international intrigue. Uh, does your team have other historic mysteries to dig into? We do. Uh, right now we're uh, working on one um, at the Western Hotel in Uray. 
Uh, they there was a secret tunnels that went into the buildings, and one of them's bricked up in the basement. So they we're actually going to drill through the wall and find it uh, actually wh- where it might lead to. And then first we're going to send put in a camera to look what's in there. You know, cases of whiskey from Prohibition or something. But we'll uh, we'll find out what's in there. And then if it, there is something in there, we'll actually remove part of the wall and enter in and f- follow the trail of the tunnel and see where it leads. There are some stories that led that it led from the Western Hotel to a house of ill repute so that gentlemen could go through the tunnel and not be seen during the day. Uh, We have about two minutes uh, left. You had a Geraldo Rivera moment in one of your investigations, like Rivera opening Al Capone's empty vault on live TV in 86. You discovered uh, what you thought was a buried safe belonging to the founder of Grand Junction. You dug it up to celebrate Grand Junction's 125th anniversary only to discover it was an empty cistern. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, was, it, it was a disappointment, but... Yeah, I wonder but, if it's just a good example of how science can help dispel rumors, which just become lore. It's true. And I used to, uh, on my walking tours, uh, downtown historical tours, I'd say, you know, this is where the safe is buried. And what I found out, though, is uh, once uh, we got, you know, piping in Grand Junction with water that the cisterns were big empty rooms underneath, and so they could be used to store records like a safe. So I thought maybe that's how the legend got started. But um, it's fun uh, to, you know, debunk stories that you've wondered about for years and years and years. So Indeed, and often to use science to do it. Thanks so much for being with us, David. Thank you. He's curator at the Museum of the West, and his new book is Historic Mysteries of Western Colorado, Case Files from the Western Investigations Team. He joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. They were trained to sniff out marijuana when it was still illegal in Colorado. So what happens to those police canines now that the state Supreme Court has placed new restrictions on their use? Arvada police officer Brian Loss is president of the Colorado Police Canine Association. He spoke with my colleague Avery Lill about how departments in Colorado are adjusting. Hi, Brian. Hi. How many dogs does this ruling affect? Probably less than 20% throughout the state. So given there's about 120 to 130 canine teams, we're looking at probably 20, 25 dogs, maybe. Maybe a few more than that, but not many. And can police departments retrain those dogs that they already have to not alert to marijuana? The best way to describe it is if you were raised speaking English, and then suddenly somebody came in and said, here's, here's French, and you're learning French for a couple of years, and then they said, absolutely, no more English. You and I both know that when something becomes very stressful, you're going to revert to your strongest skill, which for us would be English. Well, that would be the same thing as a dog taught in marijuana and then later attempting to extinguish that odor. Because it's so prevalent in their background and training, they just, when they get really, really excited or something like that, they would revert back to that being an odor that they would be rewarded for. So you just might not be confident that a dog would, from there on out, not alert to marijuana. No. The case ruling very specifically said you have to have probable cause to utilize a dog trained in marijuana. And marijuana has been legal in the state for a while now. So have Colorado police departments been preparing to phase out drug-sniffing dogs that are sensitive to marijuana? Absolutely. It's been about four years. And when we saw this coming and when it first came on the first ballots and it was so close, it was a pretty good sign to us that, hey, 
you need to start training your dogs without this. So as the older dogs retired and we were phasing them out, we started coming more and more into just having dogs trained without marijuana. Uh, it just because it was just hedging the bets because it, even before this happened, it looked like it was going to happen. And then after it's just, we knew this ruling would be coming or something similar to it because we legalized it with the exception of quantitative amounts. The larger departments especially were trying to get ahead of this to prevent the loss of a canine unit or dogs in their unit. So in general, you expected this ruling, but is there anything about it that surprised you? You know, we did expect this in, in the clear verbiage, which is actually a good thing for us in canine, that was put out by this case is that you have to have probable cause to utilize a marijuana dog. I wasn't expecting such strong language, but the good thing about it is it takes out the ambiguity of it so that it's very, very defined. And under this new standard, how do you know that there's enough evidence to deploy a canine? Well, for a marijuana dog, usually that would be they've seen other indicia or maybe they've got plain view and they're then going to utilize the dog for probably locating their narcotics versus establishing a probable cause for a warrant. And that's when they're looking for things other than marijuana with a dog that is sensitive to marijuana. Correct. Correct. That would be like we have a search warrant on the car. We have a search warrant on a large house. We don't have to establish the probable cause. It's already been established, but this would expedite the search for it because the dog could then be used as a locating tool and not just a tool for establishing probable cause for one. I wonder about police departments in smaller, more rural communities that may have a smaller budget than, say, the Denver Police Department. How does this ruling affect those departments? Well, it'll affect them in the fact that, you know, because a narcotics dog just trained in narcotics, fully trained, probably anywhere from seven to eight, nine, maybe up to $10,000. And then that does include the uh, manpower to train it as well. So it definitely affects those smaller departments because have the funds and the manpower to just easily replace a single canine when that might be the only dog they have in the department. It will hinder them. But given this ruling, they're going to have to abide by it or just utilize it for locating enough for the problem. Do you know if many of those smaller departments that have canines, are they looking into replacing their dogs or how are they adjusting to the rule? I think a lot of the departments that are smaller departments are going to be utilizing them more for administrativeness, and then they're going to expedite whether it be fundraising or those kind of things to replace those dogs, just because of the fact that it's just something they've, they're going to have to do. And the nice thing about smaller communities is they usually are very supportive of these types of things, because even if it is a narcotics dog, it's still such a great thing for the communities that they usually get behind their sheriff's departments, police departments, and helping those fundraisers. And while they're working on those fundraisers, how does that limit the department's capacity to do police work? Well, it'll it'll greatly reduce their uh, detection of illegal narcotics until they can get a, a dog that can establish probable cause for those searches. So it does, it hampers their ability to use the canine for the narcotics enforcement without a doubt until they can replace that dog. And I also wonder if there's some risk that these departments could lose human personnel as well, that canine officers might move to a department with funding to purchase another dog that's not marijuana sensitive more immediately. Well, and I'm sure when smaller departments lose such a specialized unit, or whether it's even just put on a hiatus, so to speak, um, because of the fact that funding is limited in smaller departments and it might take a longer time to replace them, that probably does cause some concern for loss of personnel. Uh, But I think the other thing that we forget in the metro area is that when you work for these smaller departments, it's much more familial. Um, It's not just, yes, I can use a canine, but this is a family-type atmosphere. So that's one of those things that I hope 
they can advocate to keep these guys in there until they can replace the dog. And the dogs that are retired, is there an opportunity to sell them to police departments in states where marijuana is still illegal to recoup the costs? There is. But one of the limiting factors, of course, is the age. And then the other limiting factor is there are more and more states that are legalizing marijuana. So those are the factors that might limit them. But yes, prior to this one, in the first year or two, when we legalized marijuana, it was a a capability that there were so many states that didn't have it legal, they could uh, sell the dogs. And they still have that capability. Absolutely. And what happens to the canines that don't go to another state? Oh, they're going to retire to their handlers. These are our kids. This is family. The dogs are our children. So when they retire, almost every handler says, nope, that dog is staying with me. So they'll be retired out to the handlers so that uh, they can live out their lives with their families. Hmm. Officer Laws, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate it. Avery Lill speaking with Brian Laws. He's president of the Colorado Police Canine Association. He's also a canine officer with the Arvada Police Department. The number of Coloradans who died last year from drugs is down slightly from a record high the year before, but not necessarily because fewer people are using. CPR health reporter John Daly found what seems to be making the difference. Colorado, like much of America, has a persistent, stubborn drug crisis. But real measures are being taken to fight it, as Vernon Lewis can tell you. This overdose happened right at the Capitol. We're standing on Colfax Avenue in downtown Denver. Lewis, in a red cap that matches his shirt, describes a man who overdosed near a park bench a few months back. He was drinking, and I guess he took his medication. His medication was Oxy. Oxy, Oxycontin, an opioid painkiller, caused the overdose. But Lewis works across the street at the Harm Reduction Action Center. He has a ready supply of the opioid overdose reversal drug called naloxone, also known by its brand name, Narcan. Lewis quickly administered it, and the man survived. Oh, my God. Narcan is um, life in a jar. Without Narcan, been a lot of wasted lives. In 2018, opioid overdoses in Colorado claimed 349 lives. But drug prevention experts say many more would have died if not for someone like Lewis administering naloxone. No one group now collects data on the number of people saved. So we checked with various agencies and found naloxone was administered at least 2,000 times last year. Come on, buddy. Come on back. On the Internet, you can see video clips of first responders like this trooper in Maine saving someone with the drug. A person who has overdosed on opioids will show symptoms like unresponsiveness, shallow breathing, weak pulse, bluish skin. First responders deliver naloxone by a nasal spray or syringe injection. Welcome back, buddy. It binds to receptors in the brain in place of the opioids and temporarily reverses an overdose. We think it's a hugely important strategy. That's Robert Valick. He leads the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. Valick says several years ago, seeing the grim rise in opioid overdose numbers, Colorado launched a collaborative effort to get naloxone into the hands of more first responders and the general public. I think it's a really strong success story. Lisa Rayville leads the Harm Reduction Action Center and says it documented 270 reversals last year. There are a lot of lifesavers in our community, first and foremost people who use drugs, and then third parties, law enforcement, mothers, syringe exchange providers. Chief Rick Brandt from Evans Police Department near Greeley 
has led Colorado's effort to get naloxone to police agencies. He estimates officers in Colorado have reversed perhaps 400 to 500 opioid overdoses over the last few years. Our primary mandate in all law enforcement is the preservation of human life. So this initiative, this, this drug, allows us to accomplish our primary mission. He says there's been a bit of resistance from some police officers who think making naloxone available encourages drug use. But that view has mostly melted away. Brandt believes the drug has become widely embraced. We're even seeing on the street where, you know, we'll get a call to a, a suspected overdose, and by the time we arrive there, naloxone has already been administered by a friend or a family member. Paramedics have been using naloxone for years, but Captain Steve Hulak with Denver Health's Paramedics Division says it's no cure-all. It doesn't work on non-opioids like meth or cocaine. And Hulak cautions the patient may not be having an opioid overdose at all. Whether that's an overdose of a different kind of medication where naloxone will not be helpful or a medical problem like a hypoglycemic reaction from diabetes or a seizure. And even if naloxone is used in an appropriate situation, it may not be enough. A patient who gets it still needs medical care and ideally would get help with their addiction. And some people die anyway, even if they receive a dose. Back in downtown Denver, Vernon Lewis talks with pride about the people he's taught to reverse an overdose. He's the Harm Reduction Center's overdose prevention coordinator and keeps a bunch of Narcan kits in a drawer. Just open a package and it tells you step by step what to do to save someone's life. Lewis says he's administered the overdose drug often, upwards of 140 times bringing a person back. And he's in recovery himself. Twice, someone gave him naloxone when he overdosed. I'm telling anyone who's listening right now, you know someone, whether you admit it, whether they admit it, you know someone who has an opiate addiction. You're close to someone, and it is so simple for you to be in a situation where you can save that person's life. That's why Lewis would like to see naloxone in the hands of more people. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Now for a summer road trip idea inspired by pennies, like these being minted in Denver. Once they get into people's pockets, some pennies end up being smushed into souvenirs by machines that press them into commemorative designs. There are more than a hundred such machines in Colorado. So one way to see the state? Grab a roll of pennies and see where it leads you. That is what journalist Matt Masick has done. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You've brought some souvenir elongated pennies collected here in Colorado. Uh, why don't you describe one for us? So it it is about as wide as a, a penny up and down, but it's about twice as long. It's squished into an oval. And it has a design embossed onto it. Yeah, and that design may reflect the place where you've smushed it. Right. It costs uh, 50 cents or 51 cents, including the smushed penny, to (laughs) to do that. Uh, And it's a pretty cost-effective souvenir of wherever you go. I can think of the maybe the only time I've done this, and certainly the last time I've done this, I think was at Casa Bonita. Yes, that it's right next to the entrance to Black Bart's Cave. I've I've squished that many times. Tell me about these machines that smash pennies. Well, 
they started in 1893 at the Chicago World's Fair, but they really uh, kicked into high gear in the 1980s when they started appearing at Disneyland and uh, tourist attractions. They're standalone little things. They have a hand crank that you turn, and you can see the gears working inside. You put in a penny, and you put in your two quarters, and you select your design. Usually they have four designs. Turn the crank, and... Cha-ching! Out comes your uh, squish penny uh, w- with the the words or the designs on it. Yeah, in this case, let's say you've got Pike's Peak at 14,115 feet. Uh, this one's the Colorado State Flag. And this one is a ghost town Wild West Museum. That's in Colorado Springs, the ghost town museum. Do they still make the machines? That that elongate pennies? They do. And actually, uh, most of the ones on my most recent trip that I used were made here in Colorado in, in Pagosa Springs. There are actually two uh, penny machine manufacturers here. The other's in Boulder. Oh, my goodness. Colorado is a center for penny smashing machines. Yeah. There's for a, the, the manufacturer of them. That's right. I, I've only been able to find about a dozen in the country, and two of them are here. That's just amazing. Okay. I've always wondered if this is actually illegal. Like, could this be a road trip that uh, leads to the slammer? Because uh, aren't you altering currency? You are altering it, but uh, just altering it isn't illegal. You have to have fraudulent intent in your alteration for it to be illegal. It has been confirmed by the U.S. Mint here in Denver. Oh, I see. So your intent, obviously, is not to pass off a penny as a quarter. So... You're not actually breaking the law. You're not defrauding anyone. Uh, they're not. You know, they don't think everybody should mutilate all coins. But in this <laughs> in this case, uh, they're they're willing to accept it. Okay, you like penny smashing so much that you told Jeopardy's Alex Trebek about it earlier this year when you appeared on the game show. Matt Masick is from Denver, Colorado. He and his wife plan day trips with a specific theme in mind, which is? That's right. You know those penny smashing machines where you can make a souvenir and turn a crank? Uh, We decided to try to visit every one within 100 miles of Denver, where we live. It took us all over the place, uh, including to the top of Pike's Peak, where they actually have one, uh, when we smashed a penny at 14,115 feet. Okay, good for you. He does not sound that impressed. <laughs> he actually said okay, some people are easily amused, but they cut that out of the broadcast. <laughs> you and your wife used uh, penny smashing, indeed, as an excuse to see many parts of the state. What's a good penny squishing mission? Those are my producer's words, by the way. No, no. Squish and mission is the term of art for this this kind of thing. Oh, maybe those are your words. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Well, my favorite was Colorado Springs because I grew up in Denver and I had never been to the Air Force Academy, Garden of the Gods, Pikes Peak. These are all things that I knew I could go to someday, but I never got around to it. I never got around to it until I had the excuse, the pretext of going there to smash pennies. And Colorado Springs is just a wonderland of of penny smashing uh, opportunities and, and cool things to see. Do you think that you have found all the penny-smashing machines in Colorado? I haven't personally uh, visited them all. At first, I wanted to, but they just keep on multiplying. It's it's a boom. Uh, And so there are, I think, 125 uh, penny-smashing machines now. I've been to 40 of them, but uh, some of them are are far afield, like in Mesa Verde. In Mesa Verde. 
But that's on your list. Yes. Okay. You continue to dream. You met collector Lynn Hunkins of Colorado Springs, who has smashed more than 10,000 pennies. Uh, she often goes on stealth squishing missions with her husband. When I'm planning a trip, the first thing I look at is the penny collector site. And then it's, okay, where are the penny machines? He doesn't actually know there's a machine there, and that's why I'm going there. <laughs> we kind of plan our trips around where the the machines are. And that works out pretty good. He has fun. We go places we never thought we'd go. I'm curious if some pennies are better to squish than others. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Lynn taught me a a special trick. In 1982, they switched from solid copper pennies to uh, mostly zinc with a a thin copper candy coating on the outside. Oh, I see. So the the makeup of pennies has changed. Yeah, in 1982 it changed. And so if you uh, smash a post-82 penny, you see uh, the silvery zinc showing through. It doesn't look as good. So uh, uh, Lynn makes sure she goes to coin shops, gets uncirculated rolls of pre-1982 pennies specifically for squishing. How very specific of her indeed. Okay, leave us with one more idea for going on a squishing mission. Well, uh, one of my personal favorites is at the Butterfly Pavilion. Uh, Oh, in between Boulder and Denver. Right. Uh, And what you can do there is you can hold Rosie the Tarantula in your hands if you're brave enough. Not everybody is, but I was brave enough. And to commemorate my bravery, I squished a penny that said, I held Rosie with a picture of the tarantula on it. Thanks so much, Matt, for being with us. Thanks for having me. He's journalist Matt Masick of Denver with a unique way to see Colorado this summer or any time through pennies. Next time the answers, oh, they will fall into our hands just like pennies. No, but we won't be so hasty to spend them. Okay, speaking of pennies, most museums have ways you can donate spare change. But when you go to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, the coin eater pays you back with this sound. That roar comes from the head of a saber-toothed cat. It's worked the same way for decades. Drop a penny down its throat, get that iconic growl in return. But as CPR's Sam Brash reports, the old cat has learned a few new tricks. If you've been to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, you probably know this cat sculpture. It snarls from a corner of the museum lobby. Its fangs are as big as steak knives, its mouth wide enough to fit a human head. Exhibit director Jody Shamer affectionately calls it Saber. One of our longest-term residents of the museum here. He's in his fifth decade now. He's a little older than I am. Shamer knows that in part because she loved Saber as a kid. Even as a youngster, you know, there's that moment when you're sticking the coin in. You know it's not going to bite you, but you still feel that vulnerable human moment. That appeal translates to real money for the museum. The cat gobbles up about $10,000 a year. But all those deposits take a toll. By last year, Shamer said the sculpture was a little worse for wear. His uh, tongue was deeply black from all the coins that had passed over it. His left canine was jiggly and loose, so we gave him a 
I guess, plastic surgery, you know. That included some fresh paint and a lower pedestal, so kids and people in wheelchairs could reach the cat's mouth. But the biggest changes can't be seen. To reveal them, you need some time and some extra coins. Luckily, five-year-old Will Clark is ready. He's a big fan of Saber. So tell me, what, what do you think is going to happen when you put a coin into that tiger? It's going to go, war. It's going to go what? War. So Clark drops in a coin, and sure enough... The cat has made the same sound since it was first installed in 1973. The museum created it with vintage synthesizers from their planetarium. But then Clark drops in another coin, and this time... That was different, right? Did you just hear the cat cough? And that's not the only new sound. A while later, Elena O'Neill, another five-year-old, approaches with a quarter. She's cute. Isn't she? And we did both of those last two just purely as Easter eggs. Kind of a little reward. Maybe you've heard the cat roar zillions of times, but now when you put it in, it just does something surprising and unexpected and and fun. But adding an element of surprise was only part of the project. While she was replacing the cat's voice box, Shamer wanted to include more than a cough and a meow. She was also curious if they could make a more accurate roar. So we reached out to Dr. Uh, Christopher Shaw. I'm a retired vertebrate paleontologist. Of course, vertebrate paleontologists really don't retire. Shaw has actually studied whether saber-toothed cats or smilodons could roar. Some cats can, others only purr. And based on the fossil record, he says smilodon throats are similar to modern roaring cats. It's like lions and leopards. But Shaw has also seen Saber at the museum and admired his mighty synthesized voice. So he told them, whatever you add, don't get too hung up on scientific accuracy. For me, it was the size of the roar that was really impressive and not the quality or or the character of the roar itself. That really gave us a lot of um, flexibility within our, with our reinterpretation of Saber's roar. So what'd you do? We added a sort of an amalgam of a lion and tiger's roar. And Shamer says that roar is true to Saber himself. After all, the sculpture isn't a replica of a saber-toothed cat. He couldn't be. Saber-toothed cats are extinct. He's a best guess, something the museum's artists dreamt up based on existing evidence 46 years ago. Science goes a long ways, and then imagination takes us the rest of the way. And maybe most importantly, that helps young scientists come up with Smilodon impressions all of their own. Give us your fiercest roar. (laughs) I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. (laughs) Can I get another one of those? Well, before we go, I want to let you know that in June, we'll take our show on the road to Grand Junction. We'll broadcast from our studio on Main Street with stories focused on the Western Slope. And on Friday night, June 21st, we'll tape an episode of the show a few blocks away at the Avalon Theater. My guest will be best-selling Colorado author Peter Heller. He has a new wilderness thriller called The River. Tickets are on sale now at CPR.org, and that live event will also feature a performance from the winner of our Solo on the Slope music contest. That's Cousin Curtis of Placerville. So, hope to see you 
in Grand Junction. Thanks for spending time with us today. You can follow me at CPR Warner on Twitter. The show is at Colorado Matters, and we are CPR News on Facebook. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio.